Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Megillah, daf Chaf Dalit, page 24. Before we begin, there's a bunch of missions to get to, I think four in total. Um, I just want to announce some details about our upcoming Siam, God willing, for Masech Megillah. Hard to believe we have another one coming up, which will be held on January 16th, our regular times, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. in Israel. Uh, we invite any of our uh, co-learners to share some Torah or something that inspired them from this Masachet. We also will be hearing from Dr. from Professor Shai Sekunda of Bard College. Um, his bio is on our Facebook page um, and details of what he will be speaking about is there. Um, I just realized I'm announcing this and I don't have the title in front of me. Um, so I'll announce it on tomorrow's podcast. Uh, but he will be speaking about some of the uh, Persian elements that we see in the Megillah itself. And I think it'll really enhance our understanding of this Megillah. Uh, Here, I've got the title. You want the title? Yes. (laughs) The title is Still Slaves of Achashverosh, Persian Ponderings on Masachat Megillah. So that should be a pretty provocative. Certainly it's, I find it thought provoking, you know, even just in the title. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing Shai, Dr. Sekunda speak. Um, Okay, the one other thing I just wanted to note on the Siyum is that it will be a couple of days after we actually complete Masech Megillah and we'll already have moved on, but please come to the Siyum anyway. Yes, so we we made an executive decision. Did we do it earlier or later? We went later just to sort of space the Siyums a little bit more. But yes, we will already be in our next Masech as well and looking forward to uh, finishing up another one with all of you. All right, so let's get to these Mishnahs. Um, this Mishnah actually starts at the bottom of Chaf Gimel. Right, somebody who reads the Torah can't read less than three psukim. And he cannot read more than one verse at a time for the translator. So we need to just spend a little bit of time talking about what the Meturgamon uh, was. But basically, uh, there was a practice that there was sort of a translator who would be in the synagogues who would sort of translate as they went along. Now, again, remember, there was no printed press at this time. It wasn't like you had your English, Hebrew, Chumash in front of you. In fact, you didn't have anything in front of you. You were just listening. Um, and so the, the reason why the reader had to pause after each verse was basically to allow the translator enough time to say it into Aramaic. That's what it was translated into. Um, and again, even the translator, just to emphasize this, didn't use a written text it was really important that since they were translating off of something oral, something verbal, right, that we needed to make sure that the translator got everything correct. And therefore, um, the reader could only read one pasuk at a time to allow the translator to listen to that pasuk and translate into Aramaic. And we could understand, obviously, if you read three pasukim in a row, that might be more difficult to do. Ubinavi, right, when we talk about reading Navi, right, shlosha, right, then actually the reader is allowed uh, to read three psukim for the translator at one time. Um, And so uh, the reason for that is, is that we, Rashi explains that we're just, we're less concerned because there aren't actual uh, mitzvot, right, in in the Nevi'im. So if there is a little bit of mistake, it doesn't have as much of an impact as, let's say, if you you mistranslate a verse that's in the Torah itself. All right. Let's say, though, the three verses that you're going to read are actually three separate paragraphs. Right. And so what we mean is, is that it's three verses that are in a row that actually discuss 
three separate topics. That's what they mean here, right? So Korin Echad Echad. In that case, we need to read it one by one. So each one needs to be read, translated, read, translated, read, translated. Midalgim Binavdi, we're allowed to skip basically from one section to another section when we read the Navi. And we're not allowed to do that when we read from sections um, of the Torah itself. Um, how much can somebody skip when reading Navi? Until the point where the translator would have come uh, to pause. So in other words, as long as the, the, the reader is able to sort of roll the scroll that they're reading to the next section before the translator finishes translating, you are allowed to skip. But if the basically, if the tzibor, if the people listening, the congregation listening, would have to sort of wait, you know, for the reader to start again, that would be considered to be a little bit too much uh, of a um, uh, of a uh, you know of a of a of a jump. Um, and it's interesting that what the Gemara does here, and it, it's not a very long Gemara, um, is you know it starts right away with Hana Gimapsukim Keneged Me this concept of the three verses that one has to read in the Torah, right? What do they correspond to? And again, this is a theme that I think we talked about before, that all of these laws that are around how we read from the Torah, none of this is in the Torah itself. And so therefore, what we see the Gemara do over and over again is, is it wants to give meaning to the numbers that are used, right? What's the significance of three? What's the significance of six aliot, of seven aliot? What's the significance of the number 10? So it's trying to, you know, sort of create sort of uh, an importance to, I think, some of the laws that are around Torah reading by imbuing significance to the to the numbers. And so it starts with Hanagam Sukim Kenegami, Amaravasi Kenegatorinabimukatubim, right? So the three the, the the using three verses is supposed to be Keneged. Um, so I thought that that piece, uh, you know, was very, very, um, was very interesting. Um, and then they, the, the mark is going to go on. I'm not going to, um, uh, uh, you know, go on to read all this, but they're basically going to bring, uh, you know, a contradiction uh, from another Mishnah, which shows that maybe you can skip in the Torah. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're, when you're reading, they bring an example uh, uh, from Yom Kippur, from the Yom Kippur reading, which is interesting. Um, and they sort of uh, they sort of explore that. Um, and anything you want to add to this Mishnah and Gemara before we get to the next Mishnah? Nope, nope. Carry okay. on. So now we get to the next Mishnah. Hamafter benavi hu pores alashma. So one who concludes, right, uh, the person who reads the part of the Navi and the Mafter, right, of the prophets, is the one who divides the Shema. That's literally what it means. Um, but what it, it what it so what this means is is uh, you know the dividing uh, of the Shema right actually takes place. What's interesting here is it's talking about you know who's going to lead the congregation in this in the Shema, um, but actually that takes place before the Mafter itself. Um, but what the Mefarshim points out here is obviously you have to designate the person who's going to read the Mafter earlier because they have to get this honor of of uh, of Pores uh, al Hashma. Right, he's also the one who goes uh, before the the ark, or he's basically the shliach tzibor um, who's going to repeat uh, the the shmona esrei. Vehuno say at kapav if he's a kohen, he also is going to lift his hands to bless people. But if he's a minor, right, 
Aviv O Rabo of Rin Aliado. His father or his teacher are basically going to go on his behalf. Katan Koreva Torah Umitagramein. So minor, now we just have sort of like a bunch of other halachot, can read the Torah for the congregation and translate for them. But a, a minor is not allowed to say the Shema or to lead in prayer, right? Um, and because the reason for this obviously is because, is you know, the Shliach Tibor sort of is representing um, the congregation and needs to be obligated in those mitzvot. And a katan, right, a minor, is not actually obligated and therefore wouldn't be allowed to actually lead everybody. The Eno no Kapav and Aviza Kohen uh, also would not um, would not uh, would would not leave them as well. Now that I thought found was interesting, because I think people have seen in shul today our practices that again it won't be the only one, but a katan certainly boys under the age of bar mitzvah do get up in shul um, and lead, you know and do do the duchening. Um, uh, right? If let's say somebody's legs are exposed, although right? Dana, I just want to yeah. comment. I, I don't know if a katan would ever go up to Dukhan if there weren't adults. Well, also I, I just said that. I've never seen it done alone. I agree. With okay. You. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. Misheard. Yeah. So, no, I agree with you. I don't think anyone would do it alone, but it's just interesting. If you read the Mishnah by itself, right, it's unclear if the katan in the Mishnah is doing it by itself or or with somebody else. Um, then the Gemara, the Mishnah is going to go on to a few other halachot, right? Let's say your legs are, the legs are exposed. Right, um, uh, you can lead the Shema and you can serve as a translator about but you are not allowed to read the Torah, right? And the idea is that it's sort of not respectful to read the Torah that way. And again, this gets into, you know, where we see that some people think you shouldn't wear shorts when you go to shul or, you know, different congregations have very strict rules where, you know, some say men have to wear uh, uh, jackets or ties, uh, you know, in order to do some of those things. Um, and that's sort of base. We see that idea as uh, sort of in the Mishnah, that dress, right? Or if we're not covered in a certain way, that it's actually, you know, you can't participate or lead in, in certain uh, in certain part. I don't want to say participate. It's really leading. Right, I said, sorry, I read that again. All right, Summa of blind man, right? May lead the Shema and basically serve as a translator. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Right, Rabbi Yudas says, "Kol shalor Right, anyone who has never seen, basically, literally means luminaries, right? But somebody who was born blind and never saw the sun or the moon or the stars, cannot uh, again, literally, cannot divide the shema because we know that one of the brachot of the shema is birkat hamelrot, right? The blessing, right, where we literally say, right, uh, that we talk about that we see. Uh, the luminaries in the sky and what it means and the distinctions that we can make based on that. And somebody who's born blind, right, uh, would uh, basically have never seen that. And so Rabbi Hood is pointing out, how is it possible that they could therefore um, say that bracha? So we sort of here have a Mishnah uh, that has, uh, you know, sort of all of these, uh, um, uh, you know, I would say sort of like random halachot. Now, the Gemara here starts with an interesting question, right? Which is my timer. What's the reason that the Maftir gets all of this, right? So Rav Papa says, Mishum Kavod, right? Because we want to honor him because basically he agreed to read the Maftir as opposed to reading the Torah. Rav Bar Simiyamar Mishum Da'ate Li because he would otherwise come and quarrel, okay, with the prayer leader. Now, that's a very unusual answer here, right? So in other words, 
what some of our should explain here is what do they mean by this? That maybe the Shliach Tzibor often would be paid for his services, right? And so what they were concerned about is that the person who gets the mafter maybe would be upset that they're not going to be paid. So what they say is that basically just easier, let the person who reads the mafter actually uh, lead the services. What I find a little bit amusing about this, this Gemara is, um, and then the Gemara was, you know, is going to go on to sort of even a, a my Benayu, right? What's the practical difference? What's, and I'll read that in a second, but what's amusing to me about this is, is that, you know, look, anybody who's been all, uh, help run a shul, we know people get very sensitive around their kibbutzim, right? Uh, like I've been in shuls where, you know, someone will be like, well, I had this, you know, I had this aliyah or I read this part of the Torah for years or, or for a few <laughs> years and they feel it's like owed to them. Um, so this was one of these gemars where I sort of was like, Ein chadash tachad Hashemesh, right? Nothing is new here. This is sort of just human nature uh, that people get a little touchy when it comes to these things that go on in uh in shul. So then the Gemara goes on to say, my benai, what's the difference between these two explanations? It's interesting, the Gemara gives us two explanations here. Right, the difference is, is when the prayer leader basically does it for free. So in other words, if you have a prayer leader who does it for free, right, then Rabbi Barsimi's reason doesn't actually apply, right? So then the Gemara is going to, to, to basically question that uh, and have a little bit more of a discussion uh, about that. Um, so I think the rest of the Gemara is actually, uh, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward here. Um, and, you know, they, they cite some other Tanaitic literature, uh, you know, to sort of, uh, uh, for the last section, uh, to talk a little bit about the blind person and why exactly it is that, you know, he's, uh, what he is allowed to, uh, well, disposition of Rabbi Yehuda, um, a little bit, uh, it, uh, but but it's a pretty straightforward Gemara. But I do think it's it's an interesting idea, right? About you know, are there people who are precluded um, from leading parts of the davening if they can't really reflect on how they've actually experienced the world? Okay, right. Oh, um, well, so I'll just end with that. I think the end. Of the okay, Gemara, sorry. Sorry. Uh, you know where they talk about this example of the torch. Read it yourself. I don't need to read it inside. I think is really interesting, right? The, the example given is a blind person who can still get benefit from light, even if they themselves can't actually uh, see the light. Okay, so I want to note two things. One is, I think that this is like another one of those not very politically correct kind of dapim, um, because I think the idea, meaning we can all appreciate intellectually the idea of you have a blessing that talks about light and a blind person can generally blind cannot have seen light. So perhaps that's a contradiction in terms or whatever, but, but I, like, at least, I don't know, I'm sure you're Dana, you also have this kind of visceral reaction of like, but what do you mean? Like the blind person should be able to do everything. Right. And of course, the one thing the blind person by definition cannot do is see, but why should that have the negative impact as far as any of the mitzvot go? And so therefore like any of this kind of, I don't know, setup, right. feels to be just, you know, very counter our, our current norms, our current expectations of yes, how would, we treat right, anybody I, with I a disability. I didn't introduce it that way, but I, I agree. These are the type of Mishnahs or statements that just, don't particularly always sit well to, to the modern learner. 
So the reason I say, I wanted to phrase it this way, right? So there you have what, to, like the lingo changes, right? But, you know, in it is something that is a different, different ability, differently able, disabled, handicapped. These are not the current terms, right? But there's some kind of extra need for the person who is blind. The next Mishnah, which is where I'm going, um, and I will say my second comment was that the second Mishnah does follow on the heels of the priestly blessing of that you were talking about. But in this case, we actually have something that is even less PC than the question of somebody who doesn't have all, you know, full faculties. Co uh, faculty is not the right expression because we tend to think of that being cognitive. And obviously, obviously plenty of blind people are perfectly fine cognitively, right? They simply cannot see. So here we've got the story of a Kohen who has blemishes, some kind of blemish, on his hands. And the Mishnah's position is that he cannot lift his hands to do to do the blessing, the priestly blessing, from the front of the shul, right, where he's blessing the congregation. Now, of course, again, I've got this visceral reaction of like, what do you mean he can't? What's wrong with his hands? And even if he has something wrong with his hands, so what? Like, why can't he lift his hands to bless? And the commentators jump all over this and you know, one of the main, um, perhaps nicer interpretations here is to say that because the Shekhinah um, is said to rest upon the hands of the Kohanim as they bless the congregation, and as people are not supposed to look at the Shekhinah, right, so then people turn away. I'm sure people have seen this, right, where people turn away in Shul. They do not stare at the hands of the Kohanim as they're blessing the congregation, so that that then, but if somebody's got a blemish on their hands, it might draw the people to look, and then, and then you know, Rahman al-Islam, they would end up seeing the Shechina, which would be you know a very bad situation in a spiritual plane of seeing God where you're not supposed to type of thing. So that's one level of interpretation. The Rid is one of the Balayatosfo, uh Rishon. I don't know a medieval commentator, commentator from France says um, no. His rationale is that um, that it's not appropriate. It's not respectful. If the congregation would see somebody who, you know, has a moom in terms of it being some kind of deformity, that that would be the person to bless. And this, I think, is where I have my most um, visceral reaction of like, but what do you mean? Because because even if nowadays, right, even if there is some kind of physical deformity, we, for the very most part, try to make sure that you don't hold that against anybody, right? And this feels like it holds it against them, right? That the Kohen isn't allowed to go up to bless the, the congregation. Rabbi Huda Omer, Af Yadav Tzvuot Satim, Satis, sorry, Satis, Lo Yisa And here we've got the same question of the congregation looking at his hands. Rabbi Huda says that somebody whose hands are colored, colored meaning like dyed, with Satis, which is a blue dye, meaning that, let's say, this is, this is a profession, that they're a I don't know, a colorist, a dyer, right? Some kind of working with textiles or fabrics. And then they've got their hand, the, and he's a Kohen, and his hands are now stained. Um, the Rabbi Huda says he cannot lift his hands again. It will draw the people's eyes to his hands, which they're not supposed to see. Fine, okay. Meaning this is the mission's position. The Gemara takes this, you know, a little bit further. Tana, mumin sh'amrum b'fanav yadavraglav. So the the Gemara brings a Breita that says when we're talking about mumin, blemishes that would disqualify a Kohen from saying Berkat Kohenim, we're talking not just about the hands, which was the, you know, that might draw people's gaze, but also face, hands, but also face and feet. Meaning, 
those are, that includes blemishes that are not necessarily visible to the rest of everybody, right? If you have blemishes on your feet and you're wearing socks, then nobody knows. Amar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Yadav Bohokaniot, Lo Yisat Kapav. Excuse me, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says if his hands are spotted, if they've got blotches or some kind of white blotches, again, you cannot lift your hands. And so then the Gemara goes on, Hachi, Tanya Nami Hachi, no, I'm sorry, I've read that line already. Uh, nope, here. Tanya Namihachi, Yadav Bahokaniot, Loisat Kapav, Akumot Akushot, Loisat Kapav. So we're going to talk about all different kinds of potential blemishes or deformities that could be on one's hands. If the, if the skin is spotted, if the hands are curved inwards or bent sideways, all of these people are disqualified from reciting Birkat Kohanim. And then from there, we go, as I say, you know, it goes deeper. In some ways, it goes further afield. If you are from Haifa, or if you're from Beit Shan, now Haifa is a modern city, but it was also a city back in the day, and Beit Shan likewise. So according to Rev. Asi, these people, if they're Kohanim who are from these, who hail from these cities, they also may not lift their hands, meaning to say Birkat Kohanim, why not? They also cannot um, daven from the Amud. Basically, they cannot lead the congregation. Again, if they're from Haifa or Beit Shan. So the people from Tivonin also, they could not go to lead the congregation. Why? Because all of these people pronounce Aleph as Ayin and Ayin as Aleph. Now, for me, that's a nonsensical statement because I pronounce ayin and aleph exactly the same, which is to say silently. But if you have ever heard a Yemenite pronounce an ayin, it's a much more guttural kind of thing, and the aleph is silent. So, and and now imagine if you have an a, someone who's pronouncing that guttural sound for aleph instead of for ayin, and everything will be thrown off because you'll be hearing the words completely misspelled. And apparently, this is considered to be enough of a an impediment. To disqualify somebody, to disqualify your kohen from going to to duchen, to to say berkat kohenim. So you know all of this I find to be, as I said, it is rather um, not in the modern spirit of how we want to accept everybody and and work it out so the people could you know like so so duchen from a wheelchair, right? Meaning like there should be all kinds of accommodations to make sure that, you know, that, that the role would be then have full accessibility. And I would say that the bottom line is that the Mishnah and the Gemara are not PC in that kind of way. Um, the Gemara goes on here to talk about a Levite, someone who's a Levi who presumably would be singing on the the, the songs of the Levium in the Beit HaMikdash. And depending on your singing voice, you also might not be allowed to do that. Okay, your data before I go on, anything more on this distressing Mishnah and Gemara? No, uh, it's continuing. If you thought the one I read was bad, <laughs> this one is, uh, you know, even more upsetting, I think. Right. Okay. I'm with you. I am with you because because I think that the, at least there's a logic to the blind person, right? And here the logic is right. less less compelling. Yes, there's a to our modern. That's what Rabbi Yehuda says. Okay. You, you may not like it, but you sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a side you can understand. This just right. seems so out of place. Like, don't, you're going to stare at something because it looks unusual. Like, really? 
Okay, and, maybe we should just train people to be sensitive, you know? Right, that's that's what I mean. Exactly. I feel like, like we should see the neshama in each of these people, which which sounds so floaty the way I'm saying it now. I don't mean it that way. I mean it in a, in a very serious way. Aren't we supposed to, you know, pay attention to the essence of a person and not worry if they've got any physical anything? But um, the Mishnah doesn't quite go there. Okay, right. so I'm going to the take... Mishnah, therefore, then, I guess I'll just conclude with it, like, taking a cynical view on humans. Like, yes, we would like it to, but the end of the day that's not really what people are like but i'm not willing to go there and be that cynical so okay i have we have one more mishnah here um and i have a brief story to go with this mishnah so somebody who says and this seems to be some kind of oath that they will not go up to lead the congregation in in prayer um in colored clothing, also is not allowed to go up wearing white. Meaning the concerns, so the, the mission goes on, somebody who says, I'm not going to go up if I'm wearing sandals, so that we're also not going to let them, the, excuse me, let them go up barefoot. Right? And it seems to be that the idea is that this, this seems to be actually a mission of its time in a very different kind of way than the other ones, namely that there were certain I don't know, colors or attire that were specific to different groups. You know, it was a very um, sectarian era, the time right prior to the Mishnah's compilation. So that the idea is that if you're going to go up insisting, I'm going to wear those garments only, but not other garments, or or then we're not going to let them wear the other garments because there was a concern that that particular uniform, so to speak, was belonged to that of heretics. So the idea was that there's a concern then to make sure that if, if that's your position, then you've You've outed yourself as somebody that we don't want davening from, um, you know, leading the congregation either. Okay, the next part of this Mishnah is where my story is. Somebody who makes round tefillin. Now, keep in mind that we know that tefillin are halacha Moshe Misinai, that we've got a tradition going back that there was never any dispute that they're going to be black and that they're going to be square. So here it says, one who made round tefillin, sakana, it's a, it's a danger. The ein ba mitzvah. And you don't fulfill any mitzvah with that. Um, so then somebody could, if you put it on your forehead or on your arm, he said, this is heresy. Um, so it says, if you put, if you took your tefillin, which presumably were black and square, and you plated them, you colored them with gold, meaning you put gold plate all over them, or if you would put them on the top of your sleeve, right, then it, the that means that, like, you're doing it in a way that of people who are not really part of the Jewish people, meaning they don't really know what tefillin, I don't know if it's a matter of ignorance, or if it's a matter of actually, <clears throat> this was a practice of people who are outsiders. Um, the My story here is as follows. This idea of the tefillin being round, so when I was in when I was in high school and we learned Masacha Megillah, um, somebody in Gemara class quoted the physics teacher, who was also a rabbi, also teaching the same material to his Gemara class, as this is Rabbi Zalmanstein, for anybody who cares to know, um, where he said that the problem, why would it be a danger? And there's all kinds of, you know, mystical discussion about why tfilin, round tefillin would be a danger. But he was very practical. And he said that once you've got... a a sphere, 
then you will have only one pressure point as opposed to the flat surface of a square, of a kilometer square, which spreads it out. And if you've got a sphere on your forehead, if God forbid somebody would fall and you've got one pressure point, that in fact could be actually technically from a physics point of view, actually quite dangerous. And it stuck with me all these years. Um, and it, of course, you know, enhanced my appreciation of the fact that we can learn, you know, physics from the same person. Um, and I will, you know, here thank Rabbi Stein for his insight that was brought to that class all those years ago. All right. I think we had some nice missionaries here. Um, and we're going to wrap it up. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.